Hello, and welcome to Studio Class. I'm Megan Enan, your host and diva sidekick. I'm a mezzo-soprano on a mission to change the world through the commissioning, performance, and proliferation of new music. Are you just beginning your singing career? In the midst of building your successful empire, or anywhere in between, I hope you'll join me in this second season as we talk about the ins and outs of both a traditional and non-traditional singing path. It's not always easy, and if your experience is anything like mine, we barely scratched the surface of this in studio class. However, I'm here to give you the micro-actions that over time will transform your relationship to your career. Let's do this. Thanks for joining me for episode number 19. In this 19th episode, we're continuing our slightly different approach to studio class. Today, we're relying on the wisdom of Barbara Townley and Nick Beach in their book, Managing Creativity, Exploring the Paradox. I picked up this book as I was doing some research for 29 Days to Diva and was completely struck by the various essays it contains. So, a little note, (laughs) if you're allergic to thinking about art in the market or branding in the arts, for example... First, I'm not sure how you got here. Second, (laughs) you may want to steal yourself for this conversation. We're going to be diving into the third part of their book, which is titled Infinite Variety. Ready? Because here we go. As I said, this is the introduction to part three of their book, and it's called Infinite Variety, but there's a there's an essay earlier in the book that is not in the part that we're covering today, but there's a quote from Adorno in it, in one of the essays that simply reads, quote, people want to have fun, end quote. And it struck me as so hilarious while reading because that's so not my experience with Adorno that I just couldn't help but kind of dive farther and farther into this book. But we will not be covering that that chapter today. So here we go. Richard E. Caves is known as the author of the book called Creative Industries, Contracts Between Art and Commerce. And his 2002 characteristic of, quote, infinite variety, end quote, refers to the variety of creative products that are available to the consumer and also the wide variety, both within and between formats that compete for consumers' attention. We use it, infinite variety, to invoke either the universe of possibilities from which the artist chooses or the array of actual creative products from which the consumer chooses or the consumers choose. The infinite variety of products available and the infinite variety of facets within each creative product make market prediction difficult. This is one of the reasons why I wanted to dive into this part of this book is because when we've talked about doing... um, business plans, for example, there's this part of market differentiation or understanding your market. And I think that it's incredibly difficult for particularly individual artists to understand who their market is, what their marketplace is, what their market value is, those kinds of things. And 
I think that this book helps us kind of dive into that a little bit more. So while a creative product may be successful, it is generally difficult to ascertain what element or combination of elements led to its success. The criteria of choice for one consumer may not be the same for another for another or even for the same product. This is a challenge that we run into constantly, right? Is this idea that if I make a successful recital for one place or one time, that that may not be a a successful recital in another place or another time or with the same group of people that a performance can be as, as an idea, as a product. I'm using product in a very, very overarching way here, not in this like really callous arts, you know, um, the market only kind of idea, but as a performance, as a product, as this is going to be difficult for us to always recapture the same elements. And you never know who in the audience is reacting to one element over another element and what makes that successful. As a result, it is difficult for an industry to build on success by replicating successful combinations although this does not prevent attempts at doing so, as sequels and franchises attest. Because of infinite variety, there's a large element of risk in any investment process with problems of evaluating likely returns on investment. Infinite variety also raises difficulties on replication and standardization of production. We find this all the time, that in opera, for example, that if we do really well with the with Carmen, we can't necessarily use the exact same procedures or processes to make Jonathan Dove's flight have the same audience attraction. I had someone ask me when we talk about creative placemaking that uh, San Francisco opera, I believe, or we were talking about doing a an opera that spoke very directly to a minority population. And they said it was amazing. They had this amazing turnout, people that had never been to the opera before. And they said, well, how do we recreate that? And how do we get them to come to see like uh, Turandot, for example? And I was like, well, you just have to realize that that audience that audience sees themselves in this opera, but they don't necessarily see themselves in, uh, take anything, for example, um, La Boheme. They're not going to see themselves in La Boheme in the same way. And so we can't, we can't standardize that process for building audiences when, when you want to do different kinds of works in which your audience may not see themselves as readily. Yes. And so this indeterminacy of infinite variety leads to a broad variety of business responses, investment decisions that spread risks through portfolio management where they're absorbed by offsetting hits and flops. Obviously, this is a much larger when when we're talking about much larger production values than than an individual artist necessarily. But production and distribution alliances and licensing, controlling costs through outsourcing and flexible specialization, decentralized production allied to a more concentrated and globalized distribution function, controlling production and creation through Fordist methods, for example, the Hollywood studio system or manufactured bands, controlling distribution and controlling consumption through influencing consumer choice. These are all things that likely we don't have access to from this individual artist level, particularly if we're working in opera or new music, chamber music, etc. But it is a way to think about economies of scale as we're moving forward and trying to build more interest and more visibility around the work that we're doing. 
all of these strategies represent the search for and imposition of quote unquote discipline, end quote, or rules of the game that will allow for the inherent indeterminacy of the creative process to become more known and through this more manageable. The quote unquote market for creative products, however, is itself a creative product created through the interplay of individuals inscribed with varying degrees of cultural and social capital and the engagement of social networks. It is continually evolving. And we all know this to be true. We think about this quite a bit as individual artists. We can really think about, yes, we don't have the same investment or or spreading risk on any certain production through a through a portfolio for example but i think that you could break that down into yes we do actually spread risk through our portfolio because most of us are working you know multiple income streams into our work and so we can take a risk on producing something just because we really want to see that art exist in the world. And yet we're not hanging our sole sustainability or fiscal responsibility on that product or that experience. But we also know, as we're talking about this, that the market is a creative product and we create through the interplay of individuals. This is exactly what what, what we're talking about when I talk about the network function of being a musician in the 21st century, particularly an individual artist in the 21st century, is we have to realize that there is a network function to it. There are your skills, there are your materials, and there is your network. If if you are not fulfilling these buckets or filling these buckets kind of continuously through your work, if you just assume that having the skills and materials is going to be enough and not in leaving your network bucket totally empty, you will not have the same access to the kind of work you want to do if as though you were filling all three equally. So it is continually evolving. In innovation within genres through product differentiation may result in a fundament, fundamentally different form of category, a new genre, thus extending and transforming the market. Changing technologies identify or create new markets. Point of sale recording of music sales, for example, reinvigorated country and Western in the USA with the concretization of a direct link between product and market, which led to the creation of new market categories, for example, new artists. And we're thinking about this in the context of new music. This is one of the areas where where we are hiding a little bit in the shadows. We don't necessarily have a big machine behind new or contemporary classical music that helps us create those point of sale. We're doing it very much individually point of sale as in on the road at experiences, at events, those kinds of things where we don't have this necess- uh, wide or big data look at point of sale with people going to, to uh platforms online to buy your music. We do have it a little bit, SoundCloud, Bandcamp, that kind of stuff, but we don't have enough of that interaction and a a clear idea of who quote unquote new music is as a whole for this to start bearing any sort of data for us. Thus, a different technology, a different power, knowledge strategy changed the discipline of the market in terms of how it became known and the rules that then applied as to how it might be managed. To this extent, the market or audience may be seen as the function of a measurement artifact. Yes. So in this case, I don't say that we should make audience numbers our sole measurement or metric. 
for success, but I do think that we should <laughs> should continue putting that as part of it. If you if your point of making music is to share it with an audience, then I think that downloads, ticket buying, that kind of thing is something that you would want to measure. And as an individual artist, it doesn't hurt to start doing that now. Uh, making making data for yourself about how many people came to this production. How does that influence the kind of work that I'm going to do? If you're making if you're making the work and you are the sole person responsible for butts in seats, so to speak, if you're making a recital and they're coming to see you in particular, that's going to be really specific data for you. And how and how that uh, sheds light on how is your marketing strategy doing? Are people seeing you? Are people seeing the work that you're doing and supporting that by showing up? And I understand if that seems callous to you. However, this is the kind of thing that we talk about when we want to talk about building a sustainable life and business in the arts. So you may also want to think about downloads or, or uh, you know, point of sale tracks um, online that maybe that's your arena if you are a composer and you're trying to you know you're selling your music that way or perhaps you're a composer and you have an online store for that that yes that how many people are buying the scores is helping you judge how much reach and visibility you have so let's go on so like i said to the ex- to this extent the market or audience may be seen as the function of a measurement artifact And increasingly, marketers play a role in the commissioning of new music and developing new and established talent. As Horkheimer and Adorno lamented earlier, with the advent of the culture industry, the marked differentiation of art forms depend not so much on subject matter as on classifying, organizing, and labeling consumers. There's nothing left for the consumer to classify. Producers have done it for him. Well, I think this is slightly also a little callous, um, that there's nothing left. We are definitely in an age, and I'll get into this a little bit later, where consumers are are more and more interested in finding curated work for them. So they have diverse tastes, but they need help finding how to get to those diverse tastes. So if you say, so if we eschew classifying, organizing, and labeling, then what we're really saying is, I don't want my my potential audience to be able to find me faster. So I highly encourage you to, yes, of course, you can live beyond those labels, you can make art beyond your labels. But just realize that labeling is a function of the human brain (laughs) that helps us get to the information that we want better, right? If I know that a certain section of the library has the books that I'm looking for, it's going to help me to know what that section of the library is. And it doesn't mean that I won't go to other sections of the library. It just means that it's going to help me in a search for finding a book like Managing Creativity, for example. And so when you're thinking about how or you're thinking about labeling any of the work that you're doing, please don't please don't under um, label what you're doing because you want people to be able to find you much easier. Just make that path less obstructive for them. So while those involved in the creative industries engage heavily in identifying and segmenting audiences for markets, the quote unquote infinite variety of the creative process also places an onus on the audience. The audience is not just the passive consumer of product. As was noted by Hirsch, 
the product of the creative industries is dependent upon the end user, the viewer, audience, reader, consumer, decoding and finding value within these meanings. If we are in the process of presenting art to other people, we have to realize that humans are muni... Hi, Hunter. <laughs> that we have to realize that humans are meaning-making machines, as, you know, Landmark Forum <laughs> says, um, that we are meaning-making machines. And part of what we want to do is we are creating an experience for other humans to make meaning of their own out of it, not only the meaning that we have chosen to make out of it. The inherent unknowability of the creative process, whether there will be a worthwhile or tangible product as its outcome, whether there is a prospective audience or market and how the creative product is likely to be received, place strong demands on a sense of identity as one mechanism developed to deal with these uncertainties. uncertainties. Be this an individual creative identity, an audience identity, or the creation of brand identities. A strong sense of artistic identity helps sustain an artistic impulse or budding career while building an audience. An audience learns what to appreciate in responding to an artistic creation and builds up an identity associated with a particular creative product. Audience awareness thus involves an element of embracing a particular identity in response to or appreciation of the creative product. A brand identity helps differentiate a product in an increasingly complex and oversupplied market, and the consumer learns or is taught what being associated with a particular design or brand means or implies. Additional filtering or mediation of products through audience education is provided by critics and reviewers who have the power to promote and showcase certain products while ignoring or demoting others. Such mediation introduces a further layer of complexity in relation to infinite variety. Through all these processes, individuals are disciplined. But what is the impact of the creative process on identity? How does being creative and appreciating creative endeavors construct a sense of identity? And with what effect? In particular, how does identity link to the risks attached to creative products and strategies of risk allocation? that are such an important element of the management of creative industry ventures. So there's a lot to unpack in there. And one of the things that I like to talk about with people, and you may have heard us talk about this in previous episodes of Studio Class, is this idea of, of understanding demographics and psychographics. Part of a strong sense of artistic identity and an audience learning what to appreciate in that is this understanding of psychographics to a certain degree. It also means that through building an audience, building an audience is also a term that means constructing a collective identity. That building an audience means that people, in people, listeners, audience members come to you because they know that you are creating artistic work that that sh that speaks to or shapes their identity the way that they interact with your work is a is a connection to how they see themselves as a person and so what we're trying to do is is move beyond oh i'm making new music and that's it right is that if you would like to think more about how to build an audience you really want to think about what what are all the places in which I am reinforcing their identity by how they interact with the art making that's happening here? And I think that 
one of the things that I find younger new music um, practitioners being a little unaware of is oh <laughs> is this phrase that I say all the time that I say there there is no general public and what I'm trying to say with that is that even if you are a, an individual artist that's working with organizations say you're an opera singer and you get hired to work in a production right that yes people may be coming to see you at a certain level overall they're coming to see that production we are sharing in collective identities when you're working that way what what we're trying to say is that you are working with that organization to help bring people in because either they care about opera they care about that particular organization they care about anything uh, they care about the subject matter of the opera because that's a part of their identity however in new music we aren't always thinking about that as much and we're one you know I think that there's this lowest common denominator thinking about people will just come because it's music or something like that. And with the amount, the infinite variety of choices, which is what Richard E. Caves is saying right here, this infinite variety of choice in the market. Yes, I don't want you to go around feeling bummed that there's there's oversaturation, but we're excited because there's so much music in the world and we're choosing this and we're making this, right? We're continuing to add to this, this robust world of music. But that means that when we're creating experiences, it's not just the music, right? People could go anywhere for music. They can turn on the radio. They can watch TV. They can do anything. They can like open up Spotify. They can go down the street to hear, you know, something playing at their local bar venue. They could go to the symphony hall. They can go to the opera hall. They can, it's, there are so many ways in which they can get that, that just playing new music is not enough of an identity marker for people to say like I'm going to do this so I really want people to think about when you're trying to invite an audience or build an audience what is it that they're going to come to you for what is it how are you how are you reinforcing their identity by sharing this musical experience together is it because they're adventurous listeners, they're generous adventurous listeners that they want to hear this new work. Is it because the composers are from a certain place and they also share that that identity? Oh, these are all composers from Paducah, Kentucky. And we are from Paducah, Kentucky, and we want to support that. (laughs) Whatever it is for you. But I think there's, there's some work that can be done there more consistently if you're running an ensemble or you are working on building an audience to think about how am I messaging to potential audience members that they're going to find this reinforcement of their identity in the work that we're doing together. And what what we're also talking about here with this idea of critics and reviewers is part of that is we're all in this ecosystem together that critics and reviewers are helping to are actually helping you create more visibility to reach potential audience members that would come and share in that identity building together. So do not uh, do not think that people are against you in this way. Critics and reviewers, we're all, like I said, we're all in this ecosystem together, which is, do you like this kind of music? Then here you go. You may want to follow these kinds of people. If you are not into this, then this may not be the thing for you. 
or this is this is work that it's done at a really high level and I think that more people should be involved with this, etc. That kind of thing. So going on. These themes are debated and discussed in these in these chapters. So he references or uh, Nick and Barbara reference here. Um, Christopher Randall, Paul Johnson and Gregor White wrote the following chapters in this book. And this is kind of like a little overview of it, but it's still something for us to talk about. So these themes are debated and discussed in the chapters in this section where the focus is on the nature of the audience and factors that influence its creation and identity. Each author sees the audience as integral to the creative process and the reception of the product as integral to its production and meaning. As Caves, Richard E. Caves, as we've talked about, reminds us, creative goods are consumed in a social context, not by isolated hermits. <laughs> the pleasure people get depends on the presence of other people at the event itself and the shared residue of the memories of that experience. I love this quote so much. I'm going to read it one more time. <laughs> Creative goods are consumed in a social context, not by isolated hermits. The pleasure people get depends on the presence of other people at the event itself and the shared residue of the memories of that experience. The social nature of the consumption of creative goods raises a number of questions. What is the relationship between the familiar categories of producers and audience? What is meant by audience participation? And how is this created, informed, and guided? And what is the relationship between audience and market? It would be a very minimalist interpretation to conceive artistic appreciation as a simplistic perceiver-to-receiver model, where the intent of the art is transmitted to the audience. Randall, Christopher Randall in this case, examines the role of the audience in the creative process, emphasizing its creative role and how much the receiver brings to the process of communication and the implications this has for practice. The role of codes and the act of decoding is an important part of the significance of the creative industries. With the ability to engage in this process, an important element of an individual's cultural capital. People creatively construct creative meaning, and there is a variety of interpretations open to them. Randall in illustrates how within a performance, there is simultaneously an objective content, an interpretive content, i.e. an interpretation, well, oh, sorry, hold on, an interpretation, an interpretive content, which is i.e. an interpretation sustained by the disciplines of the genre, and a subjective or experience content the personal response of the audience member. So I'm going to go over that one more time. There is simultaneously an objective content, an interpretive content, and a subjective or experience content. What is taken to be significant and how significance is interpreted through the role and activities of cultural intermediaries is part of the creativity of all of the participants in the process. Given this, a very linear interpretation of communication is an inadequate model of how the process is involved. This perspective, however, undermines the view of creativity as just residing in the creator. It also lies in the receiver. So creativity is not just in the person who put the, put the experience together or the person who created the music or is creating the interpretation. It is also in the person that is receiving this. 
As a result, it becomes difficult to engage in the binary divides of audience and artist, active and passive. Randall argues for a much more collaborative understanding of creativity and the importance of community in creative endeavor. I love this part. Everyone, performer and audience, plays a creative role. Everyone performs. So I would encourage you to think about this the next time you're getting ready for a performance, how much of the performance is actually a dual performance, is both the performer and the audience acting as performance practitioners in that moment. One of you is engaging in the performance, perhaps the singing side, and the other is performing as the listener. And the way that that experience shapes or the way that that experience is shaped. And then going back to that quote that I loved earlier is that that shared residue of the memories of that experience together. But the question arises as to the extent to which an audience has to be taught its role. What are the links between participation and education? How are audiences educated into a range of permissible responses? Johnson, this is Paul Johnson, takes up some of these themes in an examination of a production of an immersive community-based participant museum theater. A lot of appreciation or consumption of the creative industries takes place in a public domain. Theater, for example, is a social act of producing and consuming, and it is this shared experience that characterizes it. It is part of an ancient dramatic tradition whereby reflection is brought before a community and informs community-based theater. (laughs) You can hear the birds singing today. (laughs) Because art is public, the ground rules of the creative event are usually framed within an institutional context within which an event is read and understood. The context marks out a theater event and signals where and how an audience positions itself. The internal frames of the performance establish the dramatic conventions, and the shared context of the audience generates the range of behaviors and practices. The rules of the game exist through enactment. Paul Johnson considers what happens when conventional understandings of roles are challenged, and the importance of creativity as audience members attempt to make sense of a theatrical presentation or finish the contribution. By examining the rules of the game that inform various audience roles, Johnson explores how far interpretation and audience roles and expectations can be challenged and revised in exploring what an audience is. I think that this is really important for anyone who is starting to think about doing work in non-traditional spaces or doing immersive experience performance, any of that, that, that we are constantly relying on codes and behaviors of what it is to to be an audience member in a performance. If you are wanting to work in site-specific performance or wanting to work in a, in immersive theater performance or immersive opera performance, or if you're wanting to work in, in this area, non-traditional spaces even, it's really important that you flush out or, or identify perhaps what codes or behaviors the audience might be unsure of in that context. Are they walking in and unsure of what they're supposed to do, where they're supposed to be, who they're, who or what role they're fulfilling as audience members? If that's happening, 
in this production, it may not be exciting for everyone. That you may be thinking because you are excited by this idea of non-traditional spaces or breaking those ground rules set about by audiences of the past, that because it excites you to not be in that doesn't mean that all audience members feel that way. So it doesn't hurt to provide context clues for people And this actually extends beyond that to even people that are working in very traditional settings. If you are looking to build audience outside of people who already have a strong background information or background experience in traditional theater, traditional opera, traditional symphony, etc., that if you are working in that context, but you are trying to attract people to that that don't have that same shared background, you may want to think through the things that you already understand. That where do I go? Where do I sit? When do I sit down? When do you know that that yes, we maybe put notes about when to clap and things like that. But if we are trying to bring people in that may not have that same traditional music education background. And we're saying, oh, it, it the music speaks for itself and it's so clear what everybody's doing. That's not always the case. And so maybe walk through every element of getting to your space from a different demographic, psychographic perspective and ask yourself, is this actually clear? Do people feel welcomed here? Do they look around and feel like they understand what the context and behaviors on the audience side are? And, and don't be afraid to make that clearer or... To, to put in more context clues. If you want people to act a certain way in your audience, to be very generous listeners so that, or, or feel so comfortable as an audience that they're able to be generous listeners, you may want to think through that process of being an audience member. So let's go on. This is our last chapter or last, last paragraph about about Gregor White's chapter, which examines the dimensions of consumption in questioning the relationship between audience participation and the potential for market exploitation. In doing so, he again examines the theme of community that informs both Randall and Johnson's work. These issues are made more complex by the advent of new technology and especially the role of the internet. While Web 1.0 involved didactic space, Web 2.0 is a participative... Oh, no. Hold on. (laughs) Participative space. I'm still probably saying that incorrectly. Users are now people formally known as the audience. The size of the audience is immense. And the rules of this particular medium, the disciplines that sustain it, are currently in the process of being worked out. The rise of Web 2.0 user-generated content and social networking sites building communities through shared experiences raise questions of when and how use value could potentially become exchange value, thus returning us again to the overarching theme of the nature of the market. So this extends to what we're thinking about when creating musical experiences because our our audience base is so much more aware of being a participating community or they they spend most of their lives in audience participation user generated content spaces that coming to musical performances this may be one of the bigger rubs of 20th to 21st century musicians is that there is so um, how do I want to say this there's so much less experience in letting other people generate the content for you 
in just passively engaging with it. There's so much more user-generated content and people that want to be active in the process of the arts, no matter what kind it is, that I would highly encourage you to think about those, again, those psychographic principles. What are the values? If someone is steeped in constantly curating and or or creating their own content, do they really want an experience in which everything is created for them and they are passively engaging with it? Or are they looking for more ways to engage actively with the art that they consume? So these are just very interesting ideas. I'm so excited to jump into this more. And I want to kind of wrap this up here by saying that, yes, we're talking about Yes, art in the market. We're talking about art as product and we're talking about branding. But these are all just simple ways for us to get to this idea of how do we make the art? How do we how do we build community around art making? How do we do all of these things that we actually really want to do as artists? <laughs> like how do we connect with an audience in a way that is more realistic and relevant to 21st century both performers and audience members? And I think that these are the kinds of conversations that I really want to have around that. And so thank you for joining me today. I hope that if you are excited about talking about these things, you'll find me online. I think the easiest way to get a hold of me is on Twitter. I'm at Mezzoinen, M-E-Z-Z-O-I-H-N-E-N. You can obviously check out more about Studio Class or The Sybaritic Singer. Uh, The Sybaritic Singer is just Sybaritic is spelled S-Y-B-A-R-I-T-I-C. S-I-N-G-E-R dot com. So once again, come check us out on The Sybaritic Singer. You can get in touch there or find me at Mezzoinen online. I am so happy to talk about these things more. I really value that you are taking the time to think through these things in your own artistic practices. And until next time. <laughs>